You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. We're going through the book of Acts. Uh, it's good to gather as a church this morning. It's important to know that there's more to being a Christian than going to church, but there's definitely not less. By being here today as a believer, or if you're a guest here as well, you can at least check it, check it out and see how things work for Christians, is that you're participating in the way God has designed believers to grow and flourish together in the context of the local church. Man did not invent or make up the church. God is the one who designed the church, and Jesus is the one who's building it. So what an awesome thing to know that you're participating in God's design by being here today. Again, there's more to being a Christian than going to church on Sunday, but there's definitely not less. So the conclusion to that should be, the local church is going to be a priority in my life as a believer. It's going to count. It's going to matter. I'm going to make decisions based on trying to be here, not that we're going to check you off a list or judge you or take attendance, but that we want to see it be a regular rhythm of your life because it's a regular rhythm of the Christian life. I love hearing that song, singing together, uh, that God is faithful. The world's changing all the time, but God doesn't change. I need that reminder regularly. Uh, there seems to be just kind of chaos around us all the time, uh, that views change, the world changes, politics change, the economy changes. Like, everything's always changing. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's really good news. So let's pray together. Then we'll jump into the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20. If you're new here, just visiting, checking things out. Uh, we start in the New Testament book of Acts, which really is the story of how the church happened and was formed and went forward in mission with the good news, the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. And we started back in chapter 1, verse 1. Just been working our way through the book since January, and we're in chapter 20 today. When we get into Let's Go, which I want you to be here for, uh, starting in October let's, uh, next week, uh, we're going to be in Acts going through the book of Acts, seeing the principles for us, for our vision, to keep going forward as a church in Tallahassee and beyond. So let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that it is never changing. We acknowledge there's change around us all the time. That's probably has some good and some bad, but you remain the same. So I ask that we as a church will be anchored to you. We will put our hope and trust in Jesus, that he is the one who set us free. He is the one who is with us always. He is the one who will carry us through till the end, and he is the one who is going to reign and rule forever in the new heavens and the new earth as all things are made new, and Jesus reigns as king for all eternity. God, we are thankful. We get to be a part of that, not by our efforts, but by the work of Christ on our behalf. So I ask today you keep the enemy out of this place where the enemy is real. We ask the enemy stays away. We ask you, if all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, and we ask that you speak through me this morning, and we are thankful the Leon Lions are 5-0. and 0. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 20. Hey, just praying. Hey, mind your own business, I'm just praying. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Here's what we see. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. The uproar is over, and by upward, it's talking about what uproar, it's talking about what just happened in Ephesians, or in Ephesus, excuse me. I'm still kind of worked up about Leon Lyons. So it's a rare occasion. So what happens is that Paul was in the city, and he was proclaiming this radical message, apparently, that idols made by human hands are not actually gods. The gods that you're constructing yourself are not real gods. Now, why would that cause an uproar? Well, because there were people who were making a living off of building their own gods and proclaiming them to be gods. So now people are believing that Jesus rose from the grave. And if Jesus rose from the grave, it means that he is God. And if he is the one true God, it means that all other gods are not gods. So guess what's happening? Livelihoods are being affected because the guys who are in the trade of building gods by human hands that are not gods, all of a sudden now people aren't worshiping false gods. 
So what happens? There's an uproar in the city. But now we're told it winded down, it's over, and Paul sent for the disciples and he encouraged them. He's wanting to help them, walk with them, love them, let them know that following Jesus really is worth their lives. Yes, the world is always changing, but Jesus remains the same. He is risen from the grave. Those gods are not gods. Jesus is the true God, and he knows you and loves you, and he's with you. Follow him. Keep going. It's worth it. Persevere. I know trials are coming your way. I know mockery is coming your way. Continue in the faith. Why? Because Jesus is alive, and he is the one true God. He's encouraging them in this. And when he passed through those areas, the places where he had started churches doing ministry, and offered them many words of encouragement, that's what he's trying to do, he came to Greece and stayed three months. Just some details here. He's planning his life for three months in this area to encourage the church, help them persevere, and keep following Jesus. And ultimately, he's on the way to Jerusalem. That's what he's setting out to do. And some commentators point to the parallel of Paul's journey to Jerusalem as kind of a mirror of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus would go to die, and ultimately Paul here is now going to go to Jerusalem, where he knows ultimately he will face trials, persecutions, beatings, jailing, and ultimately die as a martyr for the faith. And Paul's going city to city, not trying to force his beliefs down people's throats. He's not trying to colonize all the area, as is popular to say today. He's offering people life in Jesus. He really does believe that Easter Sunday is true, that Jesus really did rise from the grave, and he's offering people life away from gods that aren't real gods, to follow the one true God, Jesus Christ. And his regular practice was to return to churches that he had founded, that he had planted and established and helped leadership get developed, and he'd reinforce their faith. Now, why would he spend so much time encouraging and traveling to reinforce the faith of the believers? It's really an easy answer. Being a Christian is hard, and we need encouragement. Why is it hard? Because we're living in a world that's not our own. The Bible calls us strangers and foreigners and aliens that our citizenship is somewhere else. We live here, but our citizenship is in another place called heaven. And it can be hard to live the Christian life in a land that is not your own. So he wants to encourage them in the faith. But his goal is ultimately to get to Jerusalem. And here's what he tells them. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As in, this is the message I have been proclaiming city to city as we've established churches. That Jesus really is the one he claimed to be. Have faith in that. Believe that he is the promised Messiah. And because of that, repent. Turn from who you used to be. Turn from worshiping gods that are not, that are not gods to the one true living God, Jesus Christ. See, that's the message of the Christian faith. It's faith in Christ and repentance of sin. Am I going to now follow the one true God who has made himself known to me, who I believe loves me, who I believe died for me, who I believe rose again, or am I going to keep trusting in the gods of this world? See, the Christian message in the Christian story is not just simply something like God loves you, and that's really, really important and really foundational. The creator of the universe loves us. That's incredible. The message of the Christian faith is not just that Jesus died for you, even though that is significantly critical to what we believe and who we are. Without the death of Christ, we have no forgiveness of sins. The ultimate message of the Christian life is faith and repentance. Faith in all of those things. There is one God that he's made himself known through Jesus Christ. We are separated from him, but God, rather than punishing us as our sins deserve, punished Jesus in our place. It's good news. It's why it's called the gospel. Faith in that. Faith in a person. Not a tradition. A person. 
who is Jesus, and because of that, saying, I'm no longer going to live and be who I used to. By God's grace, my allegiance is now under the lordship of Jesus Christ and under the fatherhood of God who loves me best, knows me best, and actually does want what's best for me. There's two kinds of repentance, and both are equally important. One is, the, I should say, this one's a little more important than the first one. They're, they're close, but they both really matter for the Christian life. The first one is what happens at salvation. When you come to faith in Christ, you repent of your sins, of who you used to be, and now declare that you have faith in Jesus Christ, your allegiance is to him. That's a once and for all, one-time event of repentance. Then the rest of the Christian life is marked by repentance, where every day you repent of your sins and follow Jesus instead of your heart, instead of your mind, instead of the world, you follow Christ instead. So it's the once and for all repentance that achieves salvation by God's grace. He grants it to us in his kindness. It's his working, not ours. And there's the daily repentance that helps us be more like Christ. And both really, really matter for the Christian life. Without repentance, there is not faith, the scriptures would tell us. We must have both to understand what it means to follow Jesus. So the message he is preaching over and over again, proclaiming, testifying, whatever words you want to use, faith and repentance. Faith in Christ, turning from the world. Why? Because following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not a good luck charm. It's not a moral compass or a badge to add onto your shirt. It changes everything. It interferes with our lives. So he's going around and encouraging them in that reality. He's not denying that. He's not saying, man, following Jesus is easy. He knows it's hard. He knows it's difficult. He knows repentance is not easy. Why? Because the world's always luring at us to go somewhere else. And he's encouraging them, and he's also saying emotional goodbyes because he's on his farewell tour. And he knows he's going, the Apostle Paul, to Jerusalem, most likely to be imprisoned, to be beaten, and to die. This is not a farewell tour like you know, the Rolling Stones or another band that's on their 17th retirement tour. You know what I'm talking about? So there's been a lot of these. No, this is it. He is saying farewell to them. And he has some important farewell words for the church to hear in his leaving. And here's what he tells them, verse 25. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, that's the message, the kingdom of God through faith and repentance, will ever see me again. Pretty sad. But the missionary cause often leads us to say goodbye. Thankfully, now we have technology so we can communicate with our missionaries. They still, all around the world, had to say goodbye. And they left here because of the mission. We call them gospel goodbyes. He says, therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. I didn't compromise. I didn't skirt around the Bible. I proclaimed to you the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. You're aware of this now because of my investment in you, he's saying, through the scriptures. He says, be on guard. Please be alert. Please pay attention for yourselves and for all the flock, the church you're a part of, of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. He's talking to elders of the church here to shepherd the church of God, that that's their task. And this church, he says, which he purchased with his own blood. There's a lot here we're going to get to. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're there to attack. They're there to get their prey. Men will rise up even from your own number. The Bible calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. And distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. He says, therefore, I said, pay attention. Here's the response. Be on alert for these things. I remember that night and day for three years, like I invested my life for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you 
with tears. I said, can we talk about something else? Three years every night, can we move on to something else? No, because this is so critical and this is so important. So there's a lot packed into just those six verses, and here's a few things that we make sure we need to highlight here. It says in verses 26 and 27, I can sleep at night knowing that you have heard about Jesus. He says, your blood is not on my hands. I've been clear to you about the reality of who God is, of our rebellion against him, that God will not let sin go unpunished because he's a holy God, like he will get justice for sin committed against him, but at the same time, he's a loving God. And rather than punishing us as our sins deserve, Jesus, who never sinned, was punished in our place. I have told you this, trust in Christ, faith and repentance. I can sleep at night knowing I've told you. And I think about that sometimes, and I don't think this actually happens in the afterlife and eternal life, but I wonder sometimes, like, what would it be like? How horrible it would be? I don't think we have interaction in heaven with those who are not in heaven, but, but, but the Bible's really clear that heaven and hell are real places where real people go. That's not hellfire and brimstone. That's Christianity 101. I mean, it's very clear about that. Like, God will get justice for sin. Heaven's what we have for us by God's grace. We long for that. We are moving towards that. But I think about it, if this was actually a thing, what would it be like and how horrible would it be to encounter someone who's going to spend an eternity apart from God and they know you and they see you and they ask the question, why didn't you ever tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Like that's just not some youth group skit they do in a judgment house if you're familiar with that world back in the day. Just that reality. I think about it. I don't think that happens. But I wonder. Like I wonder what it would be like to hear those haunting words. And I don't want that to be true of my life. I want to make sure I'm clear about who Jesus is. That I, someone can never say that I didn't tell them. Paul's saying that your blood's on your hands. So I've been clear about this. And I think if you really do believe the Christian message or even know about the Christian message, you would think that this is actually a common practice that should be a reality. Penn and Teller, the Las Vegas magicians, a video came out like when videos are first able to go viral. It might have been like 15 years ago. It might have been even pre-Twitter. I think it was a YouTube thing. I'm not even sure. But he's a really kind of famous musician, and he's an atheist. And not just an atheist where he just on his own personally doesn't believe in God, minds his own business, tries to do good humanitarian things. He's like an active atheist. Like he's an atheist and wants you to know all about it and wants to talk about it a lot. And he was at an autograph signing after a show. And a Christian came up to him and somehow talked about Jesus with him. Maybe he shared the gospel verbally, the good news of Christ, or he handed him what we call a gospel tract or some kind of leaflet that pointed people to the understanding of Jesus. And he just, you know, Penn was like, hi, he was nice to him, he was cordial, hey, thanks, and they kind of moved on. But Penn did a video later and talked about that experience. Now, normally, he would have mocked that encounter and made fun of that person or called them a proselytizer or judgmental. He would have thrown out different kind of words. But something struck in Penn's mind that time. I'd encourage you to search this video on YouTube. He says, you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but I actually really respect and admire that person who came and talked to me. Because if you really actually do believe that there is a loving God, and there is a God who's going to get justice for sin, and you actually really do believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that heaven and hell are real places where real people go, how unloving would you be to not tell someone about it? Even an atheist caught that and believed that and even appreciated it, even though he profoundly disagreed. He said, if this is true, and you believe it's true, he actually said it'd be unloving to hold back and not tell the good news. So maybe God one day will save him, maybe God's working on his heart, but the reality is something happened that day that made him go, oh wait, they believe this stuff. Like, they believe this stuff. 
The next thing is that the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. It's not mine, it's not yours, it's not our elders. It's Jesus' church. Why? Because he is the one who purchased her, Paul said, with his own blood. He is the one who has set her free. What he's doing here is he's telling us about the doctrine of redemption. So when you hear, when we sing songs about being redeemed or redemption, uh, that God redeems us, that he ransoms us, this is what Paul is talking about. John Piper tells a story, who I think you heard from someone else who told a story, you probably heard from someone else who told a story, it's kind of how it works. I think it goes back to Europe eventually. He tells this story, that a man came across a young boy who had caught and caged a little bird. The kid was tormenting the creature with plans to feed it to his cat when he became bored. So here we have a future serial killer, in other words. The cruel kid, so the man, we're told, offered to purchase the bird. The cruel kid was skeptical, rolled his eyes, laughed a little bit, because the bird was not pretty, and the cage was rusty. The boy accepted, of course, and set off smiling. I got you, and I made some cash. The man who purchased the bird in the cage walked around the corner, opened the coop, and the bird flew off into the wild blue yonder, is how Piper tells the story. In other words, the bird was purchased by this man to be set free. See, redemption happens with the release of someone or something secured by a payment. We would call it today a ransom payment. So that understanding of Jesus paying our ransom, this is what it's talking about. In a Christian context, the death of Christ on the cross for our sins was a payment. It wasn't symbolic. It was a payment to redeem humanity from sin and to reconcile our broken relationship with God as a result of our sin. He paid the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid the wage by dying. Redemption was secured. Why? Because he has paid our ransom with his own blood. And Paul called it the church of God that Jesus himself has redeemed. He has redeemed and ransomed his people and set them free from the penalty of sin over their lives. How incredible is that? So when we say the gospel is good news, how it's not just the ABCs of Christianity where you hear it and then graduate to something else. It is the foundation of our faith. It's the A through Z. Jesus has paid our ransom. Either you're gonna be forced to pay it because you're not going to have faith in Christ, so you'll be held accountable for your sins, or you'll have faith in Jesus to be the one who paid it for you. The wages of sin is death, and that has not changed. But Jesus died instead of us. He purchased his church. He redeemed her and ransomed her. Isn't that great news? We are the bride of Christ, and it came with a great cost to make us his bride. It came with the life of, came with the life of Christ. He has purchased us. Amazing. I can talk about that for the rest of the day. But he keeps going. And he gives us a third thing. He's very serious about this. You can tell that he is locked in as he's speaking. He says, elders and overseers, protect people. Protect the church from wolves. We are called sheep. God is the great shepherd. Our Lord is the great shepherd. But God also has other shepherds he uses who are certainly nowhere near God, but are used by God to oversee the flock. And one of the greatest responsibilities that a shepherd, like a real shepherd and a real agrarian society is given is the responsibility of keeping wolves from attacking the sheep. See, Paul's leaving. He's invested his life here. 
He has proclaimed that the gods made by human hands are not gods, and an uproar happened in the city, and now he's getting out of town, and those people who believe in Jesus are living in that environment. They're living in that community where all this change is happening. People are repenting. They're having faith in Christ, and he's worried about them. He doesn't think, it's not that they aren't capable. It's that he knows what can happen when wolves enter into the sheep area. He's poured his life into him, this church, and what's going to actually happen when the wolves come? And he's not short on, he's not trying to water this down. He says they're savage, kind of a strong word. They distort the truth, it says in the text, and they lure. You know what it means to be lured. We get lured all the time. If I'm in a town that has a Kilwins ice cream, why don't we have a Kilwins ice cream, by the way? But if I'm in a town that has a Kilwins ice cream, you can smell the waffle cones being cooked in the chocolate. Lures me in every single time. I was trying to go to bed early last night. I have a big responsibility on Sunday mornings. I do this three times. Make sure I'm rested. So I go to bed pretty early. But I knew that Ohio State Notre Dame was still happening. If I'm not in front of the TV, I don't need blue light. All the wellness people say that's bad, and it takes a long time to fall asleep or whatever on their blogs. So here I am on their Instagram feeds, I should say. Does anybody blog anymore? On their Instagram feeds. And I'm like, I got to check. I got to check. So I lean over to my phone. So again, the blue light's coming at me now. So I'm waking back up again, and I see the game is close, and that Ohio State's like inside the five. So what do I do? I hit Peacock on my phone, NBC and I have to watch the rest of the game. It just kind of lured me in that note. We know what it means to be lured. There, there's a good kind of lure that's just fun and innocent. But there's another kind of lure that happens. And he says it happens from wolves that distort the truth. And where it happens, again, we expect it to happen out there. But what he's worrying about is that it can happen in here, as in within the family of God. He says, therefore, be alert. He says, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And again, that might be an eye roll going, why do we talk about this every night? Can we move on? Dad, you've told us the same story 17 times. You can relate to as a kid. With my kids, it's probably 18 times. This is so important is what he's saying. That it's bringing him to tears. This is his farewell address. Because dealing with wolves can be easily seen as maybe divisive, but it's actually not. It actually preserves unity. It protects the flock from being savagely devoured spiritually. And the tears here show us urgency. They show us humility rather than arrogance. This is not a lecture that's happening here. He's not condemning. He's pleading with them from the heart of a pastor. We see in 1 Peter 5, James chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we see regularly speaking on protecting from wolves being a major theme of the New Testament, a major theme of the forming of the church. And all of those passages that I just example, gave an example, 1 Peter 5, James 4, Ephesians 4, all speak on protecting from wolves, but all point to humility as a necessity to alertness and resisting the schemes of the devil. It's humility rather than being combative that the scriptures point us to. It means you have to be teachable. You get to see where you're vulnerable. You get to see maybe where you've gone wrong. Zach Meredith, our groups director here and pulpit moving extraordinaire, said this to me over the week. He actually texted me this this past week when we were talking about the passage. He said, humbly resting in God's protection and truth, resting in that, is more effective 
and more Christ-like than relying on our own human-made devices and defenses. So where do we humbly rest in God's truth as he's designed for us? In the church that preaches the word of God. That that's where we rest humbly. First and foremost, in the scriptures. The scriptures are our authority. But also in the church that God has given us to live out those scriptures. So wolves back then looked maybe different than they do today in terms of the actual topics they were dealing with. Uh, Back then, they'd had wolves that would come in and say, you're not saved by grace, you have to still keep Jewish law in order to have your sins forgiven. Yes, Jesus died, yes, he rose again, but here's the things you still have to do. Well, that totally diminishes the cross of Christ. And if there's even one work that caused us to be saved, it means we're not saved by grace through faith, we're saved by our own efforts. That's why you see much of the New Testament letters addressing those realities. Say, no, it's by grace we're saved through faith. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It's God's gift. It's not our own. It's based on God's love for us, not our effort from him. Jesus did the work. He's the only one who's ever lived perfectly, whoever actually lived his life full of works perfectly. We depend on him, not us, like over and over again. But wolves keep coming today. The Bible's timeless. It's never changing. And it's so easy to miss them because they often come with sheep's clothing. I think the fairy tale, I haven't done fairy tales in a long time. I have a seven-month-old now, so I'm sure they're coming again, but I have a 17-year-old all the way to a seven-month-old. Lord have mercy on the working man, okay? So that's that, but Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf would dress up, dressed up as her grandmother, I think that's the right fairy tale, and fooled her, thought it was grandma, sweet, means well, wants what's best for you, makes the best cookies, reads your Bible every night. But it wasn't grandma, it was actually a wolf dressed up like her, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I think one of the biggest ones that's coming our way today is ideologies. Far left and far right. If it's YouTube messaging that warps our brains, if it's an ideology that says you have to accept and affirm this or you're not a loving person, you're not a good person, that you're a bigot, It's coming 100 miles an hour. It's not on its way, it's already here. I'm really worried right now about what I see about progressive ideologies infiltrating, especially young Christians, via social media. I'm really concerned about what I see happening with a lot of young men who are more on the right, the YouTube trails, the conspiracy theories, and things they go down that are just toxic and form their brains. So they put more authority in the recent podcast host who owns the libs than they do the scriptures and their elders and their leaders. Worries me a lot. Also, what's happening with progressivism, with the sexual revolution, which I think is the gateway drug to denying the faith altogether. First you give in, and you say a man is not a man if if he says he's not a man, or whatever else we're supposed to be told. Or just to say, and it happens every time. Within three or four years, they're gone altogether. They're gone altogether. I'm not saying that everyone who's part of the sexual revolution is a wolf. They're human beings made in the image of God. Please hear me there when I say that. What I'm saying is when it infiltrates the church with an agenda, it becomes a wolf and sheep situation. I heard Tim Keller call ideology, he said what, ideology is what happens when an idea turns into an idol. An idea turns into an idol. I put it this way, that when an idea, when an idea becomes a theology, you have an ideology. 
And I think we have it most today with the new religion that is the sexual revolution. I was listening to a podcast by some European pastors, and they were talking about the reality of where they live in, in England, and that's one of the reasons why we're playing a church in London is because Christianity is really demised over there. So we've got to take the gospel to places that don't have very many churches. So our church is two, actually our church, Redeemer Queen Spark in London that we support through Let's Go, is two years old this past weekend. How often is that? How awesome is that? Two years old. Yeah, so it's rolling. It's very exciting. But they said, it's not that religion has disappeared. Religion never disappears. It gets replaced. Christianity has disappeared. Often, not everywhere, but in many places in Europe. And they said, these are pastors, very insightful, very involved in the community, very just savvy about what's happening. They say here, and I think it's very true here in America, it just still has some Christian language on it, it's been replaced with politics. Politics, a very good thing, a very important thing. Those of you that give your lives to work in politics in our city and beyond, thank you. So important. But as Christians, you will agree, I hope, that it makes a really lousy religion. So what's pulling people apart today? It used to be religion, it's politics. How many people that still don't speak to a family member because of the 2016 election? Of course, it's their fault, the other person's fault, but actually it's a, it's a religion issue. It's a heart issue. And the wolves are coming into churches and saying, this is what is ultimate. A wolf is what happens when it gets imposed on the church. And it's coming at us. It is, in my opinion, a test of Christian orthodoxy, whether or not you affirm that marriage is between a man and a woman in that alone. And here is reality. We will protect this church from the sexual revolution. We will. For the next generation. And at the exact same time, extend the love of God and redemption found in Jesus Christ to those who are stuck in it and are being lied to. At the same time. And I think churches have to be prepared to receive what I call refugees of the sexual revolution, who are going to eventually realize that they've been lied to, that they don't need a new husband, they don't need a new gender. It's not, oh, this person at the gym, but they're going to believe they were lied to. They're not, I am what I feel. I am what I'm attracted to. I am my desires. They're going to realize, they're going to realize, because it's not sustainable. It's a house built on the sand. And churches have to be ready to say, here's Jesus and he's for you, and he wants to change your life. Have faith in him and repent, but we're not gonna pretend that God's okay with it. God's okay with God, and he's given us a design, and this is not radical, this is not new. Christians have always believed this. Jesus echoed it. It's foundational to the faith. It's foundational to biology. Part of protecting from wolves is simply being clear. The next one, which I think is even more of a problem, because it's more subtle, is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is already here in churches all across America, and it's often winning the day. That's things like, you know the slogans, you be you, you just be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself, that means leave your husband, that means whatever it is, you just go follow your heart. God wants you to be happy. Mark Sayers, an Australian pastor, says the highest good in this context is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. So as a result, the faith must be reshaped. 
it must be deconstructed or even destroyed. It has to accommodate at the end of the day. And oh, has it done so. Trevin Wax writes that faith is no longer focused on reality or something true. We have an object to our faith. It's Jesus and what he has said and what he has done. Instead, it's a therapeutic choice intended to aid you in your pursuit of of self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. In this expressivist framework, anything that gets in the way of sex, I keep saying sex, it's kind of the same thing, of self-exaltation or self-fulfillment is a problem. Why do you think self-help, live your God-sized dream churches are so popular and even your non-Christian friends follow them on Instagram? Because they're giving you enough Bible where it sounds right but forcing you something that just simply tickles your ears and feels good. And the wolves are destroying marriages with it, destroying faith, causing midlife crisis to come earlier, destroying children with pressures put on them to achieve this and be this. And it's a gospel that's only recognizable in an affluent first world country that would make no sense whatsoever for Christians who are in jail in North Korea. And churches are accommodating and twisting to receive it, to be liked. And I get the temptation. Paul said this in his farewell, men will rise up even from your own number. They're going to distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with people where the basis of their choices and their sin is they will tell me back, I think God just wants me to be happy. Do I think God wants his people to have joy? Absolutely. But the way we're defining God wanting us to just be happy is twisting how God presents this to us in the scriptures. When be true to yourself is the greatest commandment. The failure to be yourself becomes the biggest sin. So the rejection of someone else's self-expression is probably the second worst sin. The wolves are running with this and Christians are buying it. Churches have to speak to the crisis of personal meaning. There's a crisis there when it comes to personal meaning. If I can't have this, my life has no meaning. If I can't act on this, my life has no meaning. I'm going to quote Wax again because he's just so strong in this area. He's written a lot of great stuff. One can recast much of Christianity and even church going in terms that are friendly to the expressive individualism of our society. The result is that the historic truths of Christianity and the moral claims of the church get pushed to the periphery of one's religious experience while the center gets pulled towards a more generic kind of inspiration claiming it's what Jesus talked about when he promised us abundant life. It's an important truth in the scriptures. Jesus has promised his people abundant life. But how has he defined abundant life? He has defined it as he is the abundant life. That the good life and the blessed life and the abundant life and the joyful life and the satisfying life ultimately is found in the one who died for us and rose again. It's found in him. So unless we define what the abundant life is according to scripture, people will define abundant life according to the world. They'll say amen to your teaching when you quote abundant life and blessed by God all day long when in reality you and your people that are in the context are speaking two different languages. You're working from two different kinds of Christianity, two different frameworks. 
Your idea of abundance is about the God-centered flourishing of human life that belongs to every single Christian on the face of the earth. It applies to the Christian where things are just going great and all the dreams are being achieved and it applies to the Christian in a third world country right now who can barely have water. Because Jesus is the greatest blessing. We have to be careful that our idea of abundance is not linked to the American dream with a kind of veneer, I'll call it, of Christian spirituality sprinkled on top of it. And Instagram, which I love and use and enjoy, is probably the worst culprit of it right now. Be careful, Paul would say. Be alert. Christians aren't scared people. Christians aren't fearful people. We are alert and aware people. He says, be careful. And now he says, again, he's signing off. I commit you to God. He's who we depend on. He's saying, I'm not the one you depend on. Our gifts are not what we depend on. We depend on God, like he's the one. Like, we're just humans. I commit you to God, because God's not in this. None of it matters. And to the word of his grace, and the good news of the gospel, like, that's what ultimately matters. He says, you know what? It's that that's going to build you up. It's not more of this and more of that. The gospel is what's going to build you up. And you know what we have waiting for us? Something the Instagramification of the faith can never promise. An inheritance among all, as in every Christian who's ever lived, who are sanctified, as in made holy, declared righteous, forgiven of sins by God. Leslie Newbegin, the European missionary a generation plus ago, who really was pushing the church to engage the West when it came to missions. He said this, he said, who will be the missionaries to this culture? Who's it gonna be? Who will confront, confront this culture of ours with the claim of absolute truth? The claim that Jesus Christ is the truth. Like, who's it going to be? And I wonder, taking liberty here, but I wonder, that was on Paul's mind as he gave those farewell thoughts to those in cities where he once lived, where he planted churches, and where he pastored and ministered. Who's it going to be? Who's going to carry the mantle of God's love to a world that's so desperately trying to find it, but sadly is finding it in everywhere else but him? Who's going to carry it? Who's going to say enough is enough to the sexual revolution? Who's going to stand up and say what's happening with sex reassignment surgery is child abuse? Who's going to stand up to racism and say not on our watch, not in our church, not in our city, not in our country? Who's going to stand up for life? What Christians are going to take the mental health crisis in our world seriously? Who's going to say no? It's not all roads lead to the same place. Because if that's true, then everything my Savior endured was meaningless. Like, who's, going to, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be in Ephesus as I leave? Like, who's going to contend for the faith? Who's going to remain a part of the church? Who's going to refuse to buy the lies? We've got to deconstruct this and change that. Like, who's it going to be that believes that they build our house on the rock of Jesus Christ that even the highest waves can't knock it down? Who's it going to be? And that's the same for us in Tallahassee. It's not a coincidence. Again, he said, I commit this to God. This is not of ourselves that churches across the country that preach the Bible are growing. And that mainline, Protestant, progressive, theological churches are selling their buildings. 
my response to that is, Zillow, have your way and go to it. And for churches that preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're family. Let us endure. Let us have courage. Let us refuse to compromise because we love God first and because we love people and believe the wolves are always coming to try to lead them away from the greatest love they'll ever know. But they sprinkle it in inspirational love language that is not the same as the love that God has for us. Because God's love for us doesn't demand something in return. It's constant. The revolution out there always demands something in return. Jump onto this. Affirm this. Change your view on that. Vote this way. It's demanding. It's exhausting. You always got to go, the goalposts move by the minute. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's go with the one who died and rose again. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that we'll leave today encouraged in the scriptures that you really are the one you claim to be, that you are alive, that Jesus is ruling and reigning, and as a result, all this is worth it. But also be mindful, and we'll be alert. It's easy to point to wolves outside of us, but often the wolves can develop in, the wolves can develop in our own hearts, in our own minds. So I know that I need to be rescued from the wolf of me every day. Because I'm so prone to wander. I want to be liked. I want to be affirmed. I want to be seen a certain way. All, all these things that pop in my mind, they're just not of you. So Lord, I ask that I will rest in what you already think about me. That you have purchased my life with your own blood. That I'll rest in Christ. Lord, I ask the churches in our town, there'll be courage we'll be unashamed of the gospel. Lord, I also ask that people's blood will not be on our hands because we'll be bold to tell. We're thankful that you're the one who does the work. You're the one who does the saving. It's not up to us, but the faith comes by hearing and you use us in the process of letting people know who you are. So we rest in you as the one who is sovereign over salvation and we get our feet to work, Lord. We ask you lead us as we know the responsibility you've given us to proclaim. So what I ask will be found faithful to those who are living lies, that they will have their eyes opened, their minds open, their hearts open, their ears opened to see and know and believe and hear that you are better than anything else this world has to offer. But we know there's a reason why the Christians in very tough situations around the world, in closed and persecuting in third world countries, while a lot of them are suffering hardships we can't imagine, but they're still walking with you. Why? Because they believe that you're the one who gives abundant life and it's not defined by circumstances. That's easy for me to say here. Lord, give us a gospel that extends to every tongue, tribe, and nation and unites us in the resurrected Christ. Lord, you've given us that gospel. Let us believe it. Let us receive it. Let us convince ourselves first that you are better than anything this world has to offer. Help us believe. We're thankful for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.